KISU is proud to co-sponsor Constitutional Conversations with Dr. David Gray Adler and the Alturas Institute, held Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. through the month of January. This Wednesday, January 30th, come join us for the presentation titled The Future of American Democracy, Confronting Challenges, Fixing Flaws. That's Wednesday, January 30th in Idaho Falls at 7 p.m. at the Benyon Building at University Place. More information at alturasinstitute.com. Stay tuned for the Idaho Falls City Club presentation, Local Journalism and the Fight Against Fake News, with guest Travis Quast, president and regional publisher of Adams Publishing Group of East Idaho and Utah. This forum was recorded on Thursday, January 24, 2019. Well, good afternoon. Last April, Travis Quast was appointed regional president and publisher of the East Idaho Group for Adams Publishing. Prior, he served as the publisher for the Twin Falls Times News. He was the voice in Idaho at the Elko Daily Free Press in Nevada. He was VP of Sales and Marketing for nine years for the Idaho Statesman. And before that, he held positions in Washington at the Herald and Newspaper Agency Corporation and in Utah, both for the Salt Lake Tribune and for the Deseret News. So he is a longtime newspaper man. He currently serves on the, board, on the Board of Directors for the Newspaper Association of Idaho. He's been an ardent supporter of the First Amendment and a strong advocate for transparency in both state and local government. In fact, he won a landmark case against his alma mater, the University of Idaho, for um, transparency and sharing access to teacher evaluations. Maybe he'll talk a little bit about that. He is born and raised an Idaho boy. He was educated in Idaho at the University of Idaho, and he is continuing the Idaho tradition with his two children, Maddie and Ian, and his lovely wife, Lene. His comments today could not be more timely, as the American newspaper is at a critical point in history. It has been an essential part of the American fabric, but it has also been hit hard over the last several years as more and more Americans turn to other sources for their news. The industry has seen a decade-long decline, and not just in subscriptions, but in their bread and butter in print advertising. Newspaper advertising revenue fell between 2000 and 2015 from 60 billion to 20 billion, wiping out all of the gains that it had in the previous 50 years. And now their very existence and credibility is under attack. So it is a pleasure to address these issues head on, as they say, from the source. Travis, welcome to City Club. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm excited to see such a large turnout. Um, Makes me a little nervous, I have to tell you, um, to see such a large group here. But uh, glad to see that you've got an interest in what's going on in, a, in your local media and the important role that it plays. Um, before I start, I just wanted to take a few minutes um, and share with you a, a big thank you. As was mentioned before I came to, um, here, I was the publisher in Twin Falls. And this club, along with some members from the club in uh, the City Club in Boise, uh, helped us start the City Club of Southern Idaho in Twin Falls. And I'm happy to report that one year ago um, this week, they held their inaugural event with a Republican gubernatorial forum with a little over 200 people in attendance. 
And at the conclusion of 2018, they've held four events, which was our target for the year, and they've already got their first two plans. So a big thank you um, to the members of this club that, who really supported us in getting us going um, in southern Idaho. I think it's an important work, and we're glad to see that expand. Um, just a quick little story um, about Dr. Adler. He was a, a key supporter in helping us get that project off the ground, and I have a lot of respect for him. Um, he had agreed to be our uh, moderator for our gubernatorial forum um, last year, um, which was a big relief to me, knowing that we had somebody of his caliber there to lead and, and walk us through that very first event. Um, I've kind of got a love-hate relationship with him now, because he called me on the Sunday night, the day before our event, and told me he had the flu. Um, I thought that was a bit selfish of him to get sick and not be able to attend our, our forum, but that left me um, to moderate that forum. And as I stood up to the podium, my watch started beeping that my heart rate was elevated. And uh, I have to tell you, my heart, uh, my watch is beeping again today, but I'm excited to be here. Um, as I share some of my remarks, I do want to just put a little uh, note out there that um, please don't misconstrue my examples that I share with you of supporting or taking a stance against any particular view or organization or group. I'm simply just trying to share examples to give you the state of what's going on in the media world today. I think we can all agree that we're living at unprecedented times, both politically and socially, and, and that the current state of our media and the information and the news that we consume is shaping how we think and how we live. And in many cases, unfortunately, it has caused us to no longer think for ourselves. Five years ago when we heard the term fake news, we took it for its literal meaning, news that was not real. Today, that definition of fake news has morphed into a label for anything that we don't seem to agree with. But it is our change in our own attitudes that has given this term the credibility that it has today, not simply the definition of the word itself. Over the past 20 years or so, we have seen this country become polarized in our ideologies and, and the media has played a role in this. With the advent of cable news networks that have moved away from reporting the news of the day and becoming more commentary, it attracted folks that could receive their daily information with a slant that agreed with the views of how they saw the world. Over time, a shift like this um, has eroded our tolerance for other views that are not in line with our own. This lack of diversity in views has changed how we view and classify, new, classify news, um, opening the door to, misguided, to the misguided headlines that we find on social media and non-traditional news sites. With a newfound audience who is willing to accept most anything that they see as long as it agrees with their beliefs and views, it did not take long for a solution, usually driven by money, to come along and fill this void. Social media is abuzz with create, creative and not so true headlines. Let's take a look at just a couple of headlines from 2017 that were deemed some of the most um, preposterous and fake news headlines on Facebook. Um, and these are some good ones. Um, there was this headline, morgue employee cremated by mistake while taking a nap. <laughs> Sounds like a rough day for anybody, right? But um, alarmingly, 993,205 people read, liked, and shared this story across the platform. Here's another one. President Trump orders execution of five turkeys pardoned by Obama. Now there's a, de there's a definite uh, attention getter anytime you've got Trump and Obama in the same headline. And 914,429 people viewed, liked, and shared that story. And one of my all-time favorites, elderly woman accused of training her 65 cats to steal from neighbors, was shared, viewed, and liked 690,000 times on social media. 
So we see those headlines as really preposterous, and how could anybody believe that? But as we continue to see this network of being able to share news instantly, headlines and fake stories, it really is changing the landscape in which we live. Facebook is making an effort to try to fact check and debunk those stories when they come out um, and are deemed untrue. But here's the statistic that they shared. Anytime that they post a, a follow-up um, story to debunk um, a, a hoax, they get just 0.5% of the engagement that the original hoax received. Think about that, 0.5%. What does that tell us about ourselves? It's no doubt that media companies are in the business, um, are a business, and they require revenues to survive, and we're no differently um, here locally. There are three main components to this formula. It takes content, which in turn generates an audience, which in turn gives us the ability to generate revenue through advertising um, and subscription revenue. When we contrast local media companies to social media blogs and Facebook pages, there's a stark difference in their models that I believe is at the core of this issue. As a local media company, I have a relationship with my audience. I see you in the community, in the grocery store, and at events like this. You come into our offices, you pick up the phone, you send us an email, um, and, and share with us what you think and tell us when you think we have not lived up to your expectations. You see, if I lose your trust, I lose you. And when I lose an audience, I lose the ability to generate revenue to support the business. It's a cycle that just continues to go around and around. Contrast this with somebody who is running a blog or has created a social media following. They generate revenue, like we do, off of their audience. Um, the more views and the more likes they receive, the more they are paid. But they are void of this local personal relationship, and without it, their sole motivator is generating views for the money. You can see how quickly this leads to the, a business model of the more outrageous the headline or story, the more money they can make. Now add that to that, the hotbeds of politics into the mix, and many have found audiences that are willing to believe just about anything as long as it agrees with them. In November of last year, the Washington Post did a fantastic story called Nothing on This Page is Real, How Lies Become Truth in Online America. I'd like to share a portion of this story to illustrate my point about the relationships and the challenges people are facing to know and recognize what is real online. This story introduces us to Christopher Blair. He's a 46-year-old resident of the state of Maine. A self-confessed liberal, he launched a Facebook page during the 2016 presidential campaign as a practical joke amongst his friends entitled, America's Last Line of Defense. It was originally designed to make fun of what he and other, a few other liberal bloggers considered to be extremist ideas spreading throughout the far right. Blair made up stories about California institu instituting Sharia law, former President Bill Clinton becoming a serial killer, undocumented immigrants defacing Mount Rushmore, and Barack Obama dodging the Vietnam War when he was nine years old. Now, Blair had 14 different disclaimers on his Facebook page that included phrases like, nothing on this page is real. Yet that didn't defer people from liking and sharing his truly fake stories. You see, Blair averages six million visitors to his site each month to read his stories. What Blair first had conceived as an elaborate joke was beginning to rever reveal something darker. He said, and I quote, no matter how racist, how bigoted, how offensive, how oblivious, fake we get, people keep coming back. Blair once wrote on his Facebook page, where is the edge? Is there ever a point where people realize they're being fed garbage and, decided to, and decide to return to reality? 
But there's something else that's motivating Blair to keep people coming back to his Facebook page, and that is money. Blair reported that some months his income paid to him by Facebook for the audience that he generates is in excess of $15,000 a month. In fact, it is his full-time job to manage his Facebook posts. So and this is where we transition into the importance of local journalism. Let's be clear, the Post Register and the other media outlets, we're not, not, we are not, we are not nonprofits. We are businesses who need money to operate, but it is a structure in how traditional media companies make their money that is key to this relationship. You see, people like Blair, he is paid by the number of people he could drive to his Facebook page. The crazier the headline, the more people who, he would, who would see it and share it, and the more money he would make. For your local newspaper like the Post Register, as I've said before, there are two main revenue sources, subscribers and advertisers. Subscribers account for about 20% of our revenue, um, and advertising about 80%. There's an unwritten contract in this scenario that we live by. If we don't provide you with fair, accurate reporting of news, then you will not subscribe and we struggle to exist. There is something inherently good when you pay for a subscription. It empowers you, the subscriber. When it comes to reporting the facts of a story in a world that is distrusting of media, it is not always as simple as it seems. So let's get, let me give you a hypothetical situation. I'm gonna pick on our editor, Monty, here that's with us today. Let's assume our esteemed editor here is arrested this afternoon, this afternoon for bank robbery. Um, our headline tomorrow, and it's, that's a hypothetical, so um, I warned him I was doing this. So, But our headline tomorrow in the Post Register would read, Post Register, Post Register Editor Arrested for Rob Bank Robbery. Our story would proceed to give you the details of the charges, how he was arrested, and anything else the police, witnesses, and prosecuting attorney would give us. And it would all be true. He was arrested and charged after all. Now let's, let's fast forward till tomorrow afternoon when Monty is released with an apology from the Idaho Falls Police Department because they had the wrong guy. All charges are dropped, he's innocent. Our headline Saturday morning would be charges dropped against Post Register Editor. So was our first story fake news? It was accurate at the time we published it. Many say, it would be, many say we should be safe and not publish any story on a crime or a suspect until they are prosecuted and found guilty. But imagine, but then are we ignoring our responsibility to inform the public? Imagine this is the story about your kid's teacher who's been arrested and charged for raping a first grader, a story that's evolving now in Pocatello. We don't know how this story is going to end. She may be found innocent or guilty. I do know that regardless of the outcome, her life has changed forever. These are the issues that we talk about in our newsrooms daily. It is why we don't go with a story unless we can confirm the story through two sources. It is why we exercise caution when balancing out what is expected of us. It is also why we as a media company sometimes find ourselves as part of the story, a place we never like to be. There is a balance between the, being ru the rush of being first in an electronic world with fairness and, uh, fairness and accuracy, which always wins. Now, I'm not complaining. It's what we've signed up to, for and what we do every day. But, this, but you mix this daily dilemma with the workings of social media and an ever-changing belief system of our readers, and you come up with situations like the one we saw just unfolding this week. I think we've all been watching and reading about the story of Nick Sandman. He's the high school student from Kentucky um, that was filmed in a standoff with an Omaha um, eld nation elder, Nathan Phillips. The video clip that was first shared and went viral after it was promoted via Twitter account led us all to believe that Phillips was taunting, was being taunted by a high school group and this particular student. 
I hope we've all now seen the unedited and additional video that has come forth showing that the group of high school students were, be ta were being taunted by a grown group of men. Um, they were part of a Hebrew Israelites group. These high school kids were being taunted because they were wearing Make America Great Again hats. Phillips, who was nearby, came into the picture to try to calm down the situation, and I think you know the rest of the story is unfolding. The media was criticized for reporting a story that turned out to be not completely true. The media, from their point of view, picked up on a story after it went viral and was the talking point on Twitter and across the country. And it was reported as it was known at the time. And yet it was the media who worked the story to be able to find and publish the additional video bringing more light to a complete story. So who is to blame? I guess it depends on who you talk to. People are no longer tolerant of ideas and beliefs that are not similar to their own. We no longer have civil discussions around politics or solutions to problems facing our nation and communities. We have shouting matches, mostly online where it's comfortable to say something, things that we would never say to people in person. We, dis we dismiss people because they are not a Democrat or a Republican, old or young, or an Idahoan or not. Having a current conversation is what we are missing and why clubs like the City Club are so important to our communities. We need to remember that having a conversation does not have to result in the changing of somebody's mind, but to a greater understanding. This is where the opinion pages of the Post Register come into play. Back in August, um, if you've been reading, we made some changes to our commentary pages to be more inclusive of the voices in our community. We invited Republicans and Democrats to write weekly columns. We added the conservative voice of Neil Larson to our pages along with a balance of regional and national columnists in the hopes of giving people different perspectives on the issues facing us. Believe it or not, when we made those changes, I received several phone calls and emails telling us that if we ran a particular columnist in a particular view, then they were dropping their subscription. They had no interest in reading. It is why we write editorials and why we published endorsements in this political season um, this past November. We're not trying to help to tell people how to think. We're just hoping that they will think. We hope that they will vote. We hope they will become engaged. We as a paper take a stand on an issue to get people talking. Agree with us or disagree with us, I really don't care as long as you do something. When it comes to our commentary pages, I'm often asked why we simply don't run what people in the community believe. Be a reflection of the community, they'll say. I have a simple response to that question. Um, show me a community that all believes the same thing and then we can talk about it. I doubt today we could find a consensus among this group on even the simplest of things. But that is what makes this country great. It is built on different ideas and we have made it work. The fact that we are losing that identity and many in this country are looking for a homogenous society of people that think and believe like they do is the very thing that has the potential of tearing our community and nation apart. If you don't think so, look around, not only on the national stage but on our own communities. Our democracy is at risk when people come, become complacent and unwilling to engage in the conversation. While we may not be able to control what happens on the national stage in this new world of fake news, I do believe that local journalism can make a difference in our communities through the reporting we do and the conversations that we can help start. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Travis. You've opened the door to several issues and you've given us new insight, and I am considering a, a career change to maybe making up some stories that seems more you know, profitable. I don't think that was your point, but I'm considering it. Okay, um, so we have a wide variety of questions and some kind of overarching at a national level and then drilling down really to our local paper here 
the post register. So maybe let's start the local and move up. Great. So the first question is, um, with companies like APG buying newspapers and having to be profitable, which you already identified, um, how do you preserve the local news and more specifically the local jobs? And one, one questioner asked about your recent change to automation when you call in and what jobs were lost there and how do we preserve them in, in eastern Idaho? Yeah, so again, I think you know, one of the things that, uh, trends that you're seeing in the, across the nation is really this regionalization of media companies because from a, a cost structure it makes a lot of sense. So the history there, I think, you know, um, Adams Publishing Group bought the uh, Post Register just a little over three years ago, um, at, along with its associated weeklies. And then just a little over a year ago, they bought the Pioneer News Group, which was owners of the Rexburg newspaper, along with Idol, um, Pocatello and a few others. And when the dust settled, we had a group of 10 newspapers here. And so we've had an ability to really streamline behind the scenes work that really doesn't make a difference to our reporting side of things things like circulation delivery. Um, a prime example of that is in, um, if you live in Bingham County in the Blackfoot area, before um, our merger, we had two carriers following each other down the street, one delivering the Post Register and one delivering the Idaho State Journal. Today, we have one carrier that delivers both of those products. So it makes us more efficient that allows us to invest um, our resources onto the news side of that. So when we, um, in relationship to the call center piece of that, one of the challenges we face, um, as we know with the weather conditions that we can have here, when we have a bad day, we can be overrun with, with phone calls. And so our ability to kind of have an accordion to staff up and staff down based on our needs um, is really di difficult when every newspaper has their own call center. And so we have a regional call center that handles um, all of our West Coast uh, newspapers, about 22 newspapers, in the hopes that there's a balance between, um, you know, the calls coming in based on the on the market conditions. The automation that we added in um, allows us to have 24-hour customer service. Um, again, through that automation, you can put your paper on hold, restart it, um, uh, report a miss, anything like that, outside of our normal call hours. And so, again, it's it's a balance between that customer service and resources that we have. Um, there's a lot of question about the post register's decision to no longer run a Monday paper and the fact that a lot of events happen over the weekend and may be perceived are not getting adi adequate coverage as a result. So how do you balance this? So I think what's important to understand is uh, the printed newspaper is just one of the forms of how we deliver the news. Um, you know, for a long time that was our centerpiece and we had all of our focus, you know, 10 or 15 years ago was all about that printed newspaper. And as the internet um, and our website presence has continued to grow, we, we're seeing a shift just in people's behaviors. And so the way we look at that internally, we're still covering the news seven days a week. Um, our reporting staff, we, we've always got somebody on the watch even over the weekend. Um, the fact that it doesn't come out in a printed paper on Monday, our website is being updated with that information. So there becomes a balance because we do have a hard cost behind printing um, and delivering that um, physical copy of that newspaper. And as I mentioned before, with ad revenues coming in at 80% um, of our total revenues, um, it, we really do rely on the advertising support. We've all seen our shopping patterns really shift towards the weekend, and so the, uh, there wasn't a, a large demand from an advertising standpoint for that Monday newspaper. But I don't think we want to confuse that with, we're not 
not covering the news that's happening over the weekend. We're just delivering it in different formats. And I think that's one of the challenges we face as an industry is, you know, we have a diverse base of subscribers who want to get their news in, in many different formats, and we're trying to be all things to all people at the end of the day. Um, and so again, it's not that we don't believe in print, but it's where is that demand and where are the resources that we have behind that. Very good. Can I just add one more thing to that? So one of the things I hear all the time is the internet must be killing um, the newspaper business. Um, it's actually helping us grow, right? If you think about it, what I spend a year to print the newspaper and to deliver the newspaper, um, if we went all electronic, that's a better model for us. Um, we're not running there. Um, we're evolving as everybody goes, and, and we're seeing the needs of our subscribers. But I can sit, tell you today that you know our audience continues to grow. We're seeing, particularly after our change on our website, uh, not having it behind a paywall, but having it more open, we're seeing substantial growth in that audience um, every, every month, month over month, as we continue to grow in that area. We still got a long ways to grow. But again, it's just us looking at, we look at all those as different avenues of delivering the news. The widget that we create every day really is the content, not necessarily that printed newspaper. Very good. So can you talk a little bit more in depth about your decision to endorse political candidates? Because with the endorsement, it may bring harm to the candidate that you didn't endorse. And sometimes it helps the candidate we didn't endorse too, right? Um, <laughs> A few years back, I can't remember what election it was, um, Larry Craig was still in office. I was at the Statesman at the time. Um, we had done an, an endorsement, and, and after the election, he thanked us because he said, you, you, our, our base, the Republican base was complacent um, and wasn't turning out. And uh, I think when we endorsed an opponent, it ended up bringing out um, people to support that. Um, it goes back, I think, to just a, a philosophical um, role that I think newspapers have in a community to be a facilitator of that conversation, right? Um, us taking a stand. We will report the facts of a campaign, what's going on in those campaigns um, all day long, but we need to facilitate the dialogue. So a couple things to know about the endorsement process. Um, we will not endorse any candidate that we don't sit down and interview in person. Um, we have unique access as a media company, um, like other media companies do, to sit down with candidates. Um, you do know, you sit down with all of the candidates? Every candidate we endorsed um, but not necessarily all of the candidates running for that position. No, yeah, so if we're endorsing in a race, we'll, endorse, we'll, we'll interview every candidate Good. in that race to endorse, or we won't endorse in that race. So you'll never see us take an endorsement on, on um, a presidential race because we won't have that opportunity to sit down. Um, but, you know, in the Simpson race with Aaron Swisher, we had a, an opportunity multiple times to stand with them. And we believe that, you know, the average person doesn't have that opportunity as much. And so, again, I'll go back to my comments I had earlier is we're not trying to tell people how to vote. We're just trying to get them to vote, right? If we can get people out to the polls, that's what really matters. And to do that, we've got to be brave enough to take a stand and say, here's why we think this person is the best candidate based on what we've been able to see. And what's really interesting, um, quite often in, the re in a primary, because it's, you know, in a Republican primary, a Democratic primary, we'll endorse a Republican and a Democrat. Um, when we get to the general election, we're only endorsing one of them. And so they're really confused. It's like, well, hey, in May, you like me. Now in November, you don't like me, right? And we take each of those on an individual case um, of what we know today um, who do we think will be the best candidate? And we, we're very clear about that. That's our opinion. Um, and I think if some of you saw the column that I wrote on election day, 
um, put the paper down and go vote because none of it really matters what any of us say. It matters what we do at the at the political um, at the at the polling booth. So I think at the end of the day, we just have a role um, to facilitate that conversation in the community and get people thinking. So if I if I can get you to agree or disagree. Um, we always think we're, we're, we're kind of spot on when about half of the community likes what we wrote and the other half doesn't like what we wrote. It means we're facilitating a good balanced conversation there. So then the question is, how do you reconcile that choice to endorse with being an objective source of the news that isn't biased? Yeah, so again, you know, our, our, like every media company, our advertising teams and our newsroom departments are completely separate. Um, there's never any influence. We, we have people who try to influence us. Um, I, in my career, I've had a lot of conversations with, with major clients who remind me of how much they spend with the newspaper and why not, you know, I don't want this story run or whatever. And it, it just doesn't have any influence because it goes back at, to the end of the day to that relationship of trust. Um, and so again, our editorial board, uh, Brian Clark and Monty and myself, um, you know, Brian Clark used to be a reporter for us. He's completely moved out of that um, reporting, so he does no news reporting at this time. So we do, within the news organization, keep the opinion side of that completely separate from what the reporters are doing as well. So this question is a broad question, but they've drilled it down to a local level. So you indicated, you talked about the fact that we are collective thinkers and that we're moving away from thinking for ourselves. What is the responsibility of the newspaper to help engage the next generation when we know that they are fond of sound bites and getting their information quickly and not necessarily reading the whole story? Yeah, the 140 characters or whatever it is on Twitter, right? Um, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a big challenge. Here's what I'll tell you, you know, our web presence, it, it's scary what we know about the people reading content on our website. I will tell you, the younger generation is reading the content on our website. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, we see that we have large followings on Facebook who will only read those headlines on Facebook. Our hope is to get them into that story, but we don't, we know we don't always um, do that piece of it. So I think there's a bit of a responsibility to make sure that we play headlines correctly, that we don't mislead, um, knowing that sometimes that may be the only piece that they read um, on that website. But I think there's a, a broader civic duty that um, hopefully comes along for everybody as they get um, invested into a community to know that they've got to be informed and part of, part of the solution out there. So how does a local paper compete with national, the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and how does it compete with pundits like Sean Hannity and... Um, to be honest with you, we don't. Um, you know, our focus, um, and we have this conversation. So again, you know, we've got this, we're trying to be all things to all people. And so when you pick up our product, you like to have a, a, a wide breadth of content from the national down to the local. But local is king for us. We will always defer to the local side because um, outside of our TV um, uh, media outlets, the radio outlets, the newspaper, nobody else is covering. The New York Times may, you know, we call it parachuting in and cover a story and then they're gone. But they're not invested in the, the local health of this community. And so, you know, our focus and all of our reporting resources are really on the local side because, again, that's where nobody else is covering that, if that makes sense. And so we're going to let them have the, con the, the um, conversation on the national level. I think what's, what's dangerous for us and the challenge we're facing is that, that thinking and belief and process on the national level is starting to filter into our local communities and influencing um, people's judgment and, and how they perceive and, and uh, consume news. So with President Trump coining the phrase fake news, I don't know if he actually coined it, but certainly perpetuating it, 
What are the effects that you're seeing with regard to the news now becoming a public enemy, so to speak? What are the, what are the effects you're seeing at the local level? Well, again, I think it's just this perception of, you know, if, if it's something that people don't like, it's automatically fake news, right? And I can tell you, it can be any story. If people don't agree with it, um, that's usually the first thing in the email is, this is fake news, right? And it's like, no, the meeting actually happened. This is what the people said, right? You may not agree with what the outcome was. So again, I think it's just a shift in this culture of, of how people think and look at things. Um, and, and so, you know, we're very conscious of it, but we, we really think um, the best thing we can do is report the local news fairly, you know, accurately um, and without bias, because then people will become informed. And I do think there's a different relationship on the local level than there ever will be on the national level. Um, you know, you won't see that based on our elections. I mean, it's sad to say that when we have a city council election, the participation and turnout is, you know, a third of what it is on the national level. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. And again, back to where I think we've got to keep people engaged on the local level. So if local is king, then why did you do away with the local editorial board? Well, we haven't. We got rid of the um, community part of that editorial board, and that was gone prior to me, to me coming in. I will tell you, in my career, I've done both. I've had a community board and just an in-house board. Um, there's merits to both of those um, models. Um, what I have found traditionally in the past, the, the people that have time to dedicate to an editorial board have a tendency to look a lot alike, typically retired, um, probably more professional. And so to get that diversity of voices onto the board, um, and then it, it gets a little dicey when we endorse something that maybe they don't agree with individually. And so at least for now, we've taken the position that the editorial board is those of the newspaper because we'll make a very clear stand that this is what the Post Register believes um, and not involving other people. That being said, we get a lot of, of input and feedback and conversations. So what this is not is, is Monty and Brian and I sitting in a room once a week and you know thinking about who who or what we want to go after, but it's a lot of conversations, and that's, you know, the Post Register for the size we are, we're one of the few newspapers left that has a dedicated editorial writer, but we think that's important. So Brian, as opposed to reporting, spends a lot of his time doing research, um, reaching out for comments, feedback um, on the editorials that we're writing, you know, as we're writing them, uh, you know, for comments from elected officials, things like that, so that we can get a, a complete look at it. So do you believe that when a paper does make a mistake, that the retraction should be more than on the back page, that there's a time when a newspaper should publicly apologize? So let's talk about mistake versus correction. Um, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> um, I, I think our policy, um, and I'm going to look at Monty at this, um, we, will, we will run the correction in the same location that we ran the original story. Is where we put them. So A two on the top of the page. Right. Is there ever a time it should be on the front page? Yeah, and probably has been. Um, so, but again, I think there's a difference. I mean, apology I, I think indicates that there was some sort of malice or or neglect on our part to do that piece of it. I will tell you, we have you know written pieces um, at least in my career, and I think we probably have here a little bit a letter from the editor explaining what took place, why, you know, what happened um, in those cases. I think those have been rare, but from a correction standpoint, by all means, it go, again goes back to that relationship and accuracy is what's most important to us. Good. All right, so you've chosen to endorse candidates. Is there a possibility in the future you would endorse issues? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we have. I mean, like on Proposition 1 and 2 this year, we endorsed on both of those um, as well. And so again, I think it's a little bit of a limitation of what we have the bandwidth to do, particularly in a general election. But uh, so if that's the question around issues, um, we definitely came out and endorsed in both the Proposition 1 and Proposition 2 um, this year. Okay. How does a person get a story or an idea to the post register? Um, call us, email us, walk in. Um, this is this is the thing that I think is amazing when people will call and say, "I can't believe you didn't cover this, and why you know why didn't why did you neglect this?" And we say, "Well, did you call and tell us about it?" And they're like, "Well, no, you should have known about it, right?" Um, we're all humans, and I, all of our reporters traditionally are assigned to beats, what we call beats. So they're they're you know we have an education reporter that's that's hyper focused on the education. We have a business reporter, a government reporter, um, Nate Brown, who's in Boise for the legislature this session. Um, you know, a cops and courts reporter, but they're, they're constantly working their sources. And so we're always open to somebody suggesting and giving us a heads up on something that's happening. We'll always make that judgment if it's truly news or not um, and whether it'll be covered. Um, but again, we're always open to somebody. So I think all of our, do we put our email addresses on the bottom of the stories? Yeah, so news at postregister.com will we'll go to the, the three primary editors and they can sign it out. Or all of our reporters, we, we publish their email addresses along with their bylines. Um, and feel free to reach out to them and give them suggestions. Um, that's how a, a majority of our stories come along. So for full disclosure on this next question, I'm trying to be fair and objective, you know, in the spirit of the conversation. And I don't know if Amy's mom's in the room or what, but can you reinstate the Ask Amy column by Amy Dickinson? to the post register. We sure can. I think we got to talk about it. I don't, you know, so <laughs> yeah. Okay, I know you don't have a crystal ball and we don't and you can't necessarily forecast the future, but if you had to chart the timeline of the newspaper and say what it looks like 20 years from now, what is your best guess? Whether or not we'll have a printed product? Yeah. Is that the, the basis of the asking. question? Yep. Wish I had a crystal ball, right? I, I would know. Um, I, I, my my personal belief is, I think in 20 plus years we'll still have a printed product. Um, you know, uh, printing presses are not cheap, um, but we've got great equipment in place um, in the region. We're seeing a consolidation of that. Um, interestingly enough, probably 15 years ago, across southern Idaho, from Idaho Falls to Boise, there was probably close to 20 printing presses. Um, there's four now. Um, we, we own three of those four, which we're happy about. Um, we have a printing plant here in Idaho Falls, one in Preston, which prints our southern newspapers, one in Nampa, and then Twin Falls still has a printing press there. Um, so still in the, in the grand scheme of things, relatively cheap to be able to, to get their hands on, our hands on newsprint, be able to print and deliver that um, piece of it. So again, while there's no crystal ball there, I would anticipate in 20 years we would still have a printed product. Will it be published at the same frequency? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I think what we're going to see a shift to, and it's what we kind of do on print already, we talk a lot about, there's a lot of news of the day that will hit our website that will never hit our print edition. Um, if, there's a, you know, if there's a closure on Yellowstone Avenue because of an accident today at noon, we'll have that on our website to inform readers so they're aware of what happened. It doesn't make a lot of sense to put that into our print product tomorrow, right, unless there was maybe a fatality or something around that to tell more of the story. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot more of a shift towards long-form journalism. 
Um, you know, one of that we're actually kind of currently working under a project to better align our news resources across our 10 newspapers, really with an effort at the end of the day to um, put more time and resources behind what we call enterprise reporting. Um, reporting of the stories and on issues and things that are not necessarily the occurrences of the day, but we think are important to the community that we can do a deep dive into. And so I think, you know, we may eventually see that morph into a product that is more focused on the long-form journalism, the more in-depth stories, and you'll see more of the breaking news and the news of the day um, on a digital because of the ability to have that on a 24-hour news cycle and, and have it posted when it's happening and when it's relevant, if that makes sense. Do you see a difference in the product between profit and nonprofit reporting? So NPR, PBS versus a local newspaper, New York I, Times? I don't personally see a lot because again, even at nonprofit it takes money to uh, to operate those organizations, right? And and where are even in a for profit organizations like most local media companies, our newsrooms and advertising teams are very very, very separate. I mean, they may collaborate on a fishing guide or a hunting guide or something like that, but from a, a there's no influence from the, the business side of that. Um, and believe me, there's times that it's been painful when we've when we've covered stories that somebody doesn't think they wanted in the paper. Um, you know, we've we've seen clients pull their advertising dollars, but um, at this point, it's never influenced it. So, I guess I would say even the nonprofit like the NPRs, they're still having to function on a budget. Um, they may just not be taking. Uh, potentially anything to the bottom line, but from a reinvestment standpoint. Well, and somebody's still writing the check, right? Right. Either way, someone's writing the check. Okay. So, how do you reconcile the PR in the Post Register endorsed Proposition Two? They endorsed the community college, but then they also endorsed candidates that opposed both. So, how do you reconcile that? So, I think when we look at candidates, I mean, an issue we're we're focusing on that single issue. Again, when we look at the candidates um, themselves, it all depends on the, who their opponent is and the race. Um, and again, you will see as we start this process, um, there may be a year they don't have our endorsement where they've had it in the past because again, we're looking um, kind of at the current situation that we have there. So while we know there were some candidates that we endorsed that were against Proposition 2, looking at them at a whole package in comparison to who, it wasn't just a single issue that we were endorsing them on. Um, at the end of the day. I also tell you we probably hold our, our um, incumbents at a little bit of a higher standard because they've been in office and so um, they need to be able to sit down with us and share with us what they've accomplished and what their focus is. Um, you know, because again, somebody coming in doesn't have that background coming in, but an incumbent uh, better be able to stand on their record at the end of the day. What is the most read section of the newspaper? Don't say obituaries. Um, it, obituaries is the most read <laughs> section of the newspaper. So, so uh, yeah, again, where we, on the digital side, I mean, that, that's what's been so fascinating about this transformation um, to the digital world, which we've actually embraced and, and love. Back in the day when we would write a story, we would, we would receive feedback maybe a week later when we started getting a few letters to the editor to, to share people's thoughts and feelings. Now with online commenting, um, we get that feedback instantly, right? Which is helpful. But we also see on our, um, we're able to track it in real time who's on our website, not by name, but by location and gender and age and income and all those things. It's, it's scary what, what the World Wide Web knows about you. Um, but, uh, you know, that does help shape our news decision when we see how a story's playing during the day. Um, if we see something today across you know, the noon to three o'clock time frame that's getting a lot of interest, 
um, you know, we definitely take note of that for the, for the print product. Um, but definitely local news is king. Um, it, obituaries is one of our top red sections, um, but you know, which I guess is good. Make sure we're, you're, you know, you're not in there every day. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, you but, only get one shot. Exactly. <laughs> um, but no, by far local news um, gets to play. And sometimes we're really surprised, right? We'll, we'll watch the little barometer go up and we're like, wow, what's going on on the website today? And it may be some obscure story that got linked to from you know, some other outlet that is really driving a lot of traffic. So it, it's given us a lot of insight into our readers. Um, sometimes that's scarier than other times, but um, we're always appreciative of that information. Okay, this is, you might have to think about this for just a second. So can you give a specific example of how your company has built trust in the community? Um, I mean, I think it's what we do every day. I don't know, I mean, from a specific um, example, but I mean, I think the fact that, that, you know, we talk a lot about transparency in in government, right? That we hold them accountable. It's 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 written into the constitution as part of our role. But we also believe that same transparency holds true for us. I mean, I think anybody who takes the time to pick up the phone and, and call us because they're upset about a story, we take the time to explain the background, why we got to the decision we got to. Same thing on editorials. And so, I think it's that that openness and transparency that we have. I think helps build that trust. Um, I think it's admitting when we are wrong. Um, again, as we talked a little bit in my remarks about how stories evolve and change, um, you know, the worst thing we can do is dig our heels in and say, well, we were, you know, we were right the first time. Um, we've got to be able to just stay focused on reporting the facts and letting that story evolve where it goes. So I don't know that I've got one specific um, story. I will say, I, I mean, I think what you don't see a lot is we fight behind the scenes for that transparency. And a lot of times, People misconstrue that as that we're self-serving and that media just wants the access. But every time that we fight a government agency about access to public documents, we're, we're fighting on behalf of everybody because you don't have to be a media outlet to go request that information. Um, you have to, I mean, any individual can go do that. And so again, I think we're in a place with the resources necessary um, to fight that. And I'll just share a little example. Um, every year, uh, legal notices are a, a big part of, of a, a debate that we have ongoing with the legislature. And we, every year, um, work with agencies and, and they come to us saying we're, we would like to restrict the access. And I'll tell you one disturbing bill that's, that's about to be floated to the legislature right now is around um, excluding information around the death penalty, um, what drugs are used to put somebody um, to death in the state of Idaho. And I can tell you as a, as a news organization, we're fundamentally opposed to that um, because again, I think it's the government's ultimate authority if they're taking somebody's life. That needs to be open and transparent as possible. But in our conversations with the Department of Corrections, um, you know, it, it's really just a slippery slope. When we start to carve away and take a little bit away day after day, year after year, when does it come a point that people can operate in secrecy, particularly our, our government? Um, and so we, we fight a lot, um, and it's not always on the pages of our paper when we do that. Um, but again, it's, we see that, that we're fighting for everybody in that role, not just the media outlet, because there's no special access for media only. Anything that we can get our hands on, an individual can get our, their hands on as well. This is interesting. So if you subscribe to three local newspapers, the Idaho State Journal, Blackfoot Morning News, Post Register, often you share your stories and your editorials. So what is the incentive to be a subscriber to all three? 
Um, well, again, I think we do do some sharing of content. Again, I think that's better utilizing resources. But I think if you were to pick up, um, to be clear, the Blackfoot Morning News is not part of our group. Um, but I, between Pocatello and Idaho Falls, or we'll put Rexburg into that, um, that mix. While we're sharing some regional content, I think in each of those products you're going to find local content that you're not going to find um, in, you know, in the other newspapers. And so again, we still keep local control in Rexburg, in Rigby, in Idaho Falls, in Pocatello by those editors to make a decision of what publishes in their paper or on their website. And so what it makes sense for us though is um, uh, I think you all remember the case that just got settled down in Preston of the, the school teacher and the, the, the turtle and the puppy, right? Yeah. So we own, the, we own the paper in Preston. We have the paper in Logan as well. Um, you know, that in hindsight, that's one where we ended up with three different reporters working that story from three different news agencies. We should have done a better job of, of collaborating and working together on those pieces. So when it comes to a story that's going to have a regional play, you absolutely will probably see a byline from Pocatello Publishing in the Post Register. Because what that allows Monty to do is take that resource that he would have had to send to Pocatello and stay focused on more local content while we're to be able to generate that story. It's the same premise that we all operate under with the Associated Press. That's really the fundamental um, organization there is it's a collective of all the media outlets sharing their content. Um, we just are able to do it, I think, a little bit better and a little bit more efficiency, efficiently on a local level. So sometimes when you see a consolidation of entities, maybe there is an entity that feels that it was left out. So what assurance can you give as we're seeing this happen with the newspaper that Eastern Idaho, that this region won't be taken over by another? I guess maybe more interesting region, but there isn't one, so we have nothing to worry about, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and I, I would tell you, you know, it, as Adams Publishing Group continues to buy, what's really interesting about this company is that they are family owned. Um, they, they didn't exist, Adams Publishing Group didn't exist six years ago. They, um, they got into the newspaper business because they still see value in the local communities. And when you look at the newspapers that they're buying, um, at the time, three years ago when they bought the Post Register, that was the largest newspaper they owned. Um, they are very focused on buying newspapers in small communities where they can make a difference because they believe that's where um, they can make a difference and that they can have a long thriving career with it. And so I think while we may see continued consolidation and group ownership in that piece of it, I feel really confident behind Adams Publishing Group um, that they very much want local control in, in their individual markets. And I can tell you as I oversee 10 newspapers, I don't have the bandwidth to be involved in every daily decision. So I'm thankful for a great team that we have in each of those individual markets. And again, you know, just because Idaho Falls does something does not mean Pocatello has to do it. Um, we're focused on those local communities and what best serves them. Um, so it's, this is my fault because I brought up the obituaries, but what is your reasoning for having a once a month special edition of the obituaries and maybe that section would be better used for something else? I suppose not if you're in it, but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so that, um, I think that was done in a partnership with one of our local funeral homes. I'm looking at Donna here. That started before I came. Um, so the fact that we publish obituaries every single day, if, if, you know, if, if you're out of town or you miss something, obituaries have such a high interest in it, um, and, a, and, a, and a following that us putting them into a monthly publication just for, and really it's a lot of it about a keepsake for a family to have behind that piece of it. So we did the same product in, in Pocatello. Um, actually, starting this month, we've moved away from the print product um, and going uh, more electronic with that based on some feedback that we had some reader from readers and, and 
um, advertisers behind so it. So at the end of the day, it pays for itself. Absolutely. So it's a profit. Okay. Um, this is a good one. This might be the one we end on if it depends on how much. But how much you have to say. You're a fast talker, though. You are a fast talker. <laughs> I told you I was a fast talker. In a complimentary so. way. That I don't, okay. So can you comment on the state of journalism as a profession? Are there standards, and have you seen a change in the standards over the course of your career? So there absolutely is standards, and those standards have not changed. What has changed are there certain groups out there that are not willing to follow those standards. Um, and I think there are some where we're seeing those groups um, when you get into the, some of the fringe um, media outlets out there. Are these written standards or just understood Absolutely. standards? Absolutely. Um, the Society of Professional Journalism puts out a standard, a code of ethics that we live by. I mean, you can Google that and look it up. It's nothing secret about it. I think there's 11 points on there. Nine points, something like that. And what's the consequence if you violate them? Um, you don't work for us. So, I mean, because again, at the end of the day, that trust, I mean, you know, we've all, we've all heard the stories of Jason Blair at the New York Times who made up stories and didn't travel. I mean, once that was discovered, he was promptly fired. You know, we're, we're, that's a large news organization. We're pretty intimate with our employees and working with them on a daily basis. So we, we think we've got a lot of safeguards in place that a reporter's not making up, you know, a story. Um, but I, could, I can tell you, if that was to ever happen in any of our news organizations, um, there, there's just zero tolerance um, for that. Because at the end of the day, I'll go back to the line I used, if I lose you, I lose your trust, I lose you at the end of the day. And, and that's what's the utmost importance to us. And those standards were established when? And are they reviewed? And Long, long time ago, probably 100 plus years ago. Um, and they're still relevant today, because it's all about fair, fairness, accuracy. Um, treating um, sources with um, respect. Um, again, making sure that you know we're not we're not to cause harm um, in our reporting. That doesn't mean if the facts you know are damaging that we're not going to report the facts. But doesn't mean that we you know venture into a personal side of things like that. I'm trying to remember what other points are on there. It's been a while since I've looked at them, but yeah. So, so you talked a little bit about plagiarism and um, how we treat our sources. You know, we have a lot of. Um, Believe it or not, it's, it's not the sensational thing you see in the movies, but we have a lot of off-the-record conversations with, with sources because it's important that we get background information, right? This may be not fit for publishing. That's something that we respect um, to the utmost. You know, it's, a, it's a, something we have zero tolerance if somebody was to break that confidence, if something is given to us um, off the record and not for publication, and we were to, to break that, that trust. So. So you can go to spj.org and see these standards. I'd read them, but they're, they're, it's lengthy. It is lengthy. But I do think it's very interesting and worth a read because a lot of what you've talked about today uh, coincides exactly with, with, well, you know, with a lot of, like, you're talking about promoting a civil exchange of views and a dialogue. So that's part of, that's one mm -hmm. of the standards, which is exactly what you're saying when you endorse, you're trying to you're trying, trying to start a civil conversation. Like you said, they don't have to ad agree, but at least maybe we can have a civil dialogue. Uh, not let speed overtake the accuracy of the story. So it's good to have print journalism that maybe isn't right there on the scene, you know, or is it right there on the scene, but isn't necessarily right, reporting right away, taking some time to evaluate the facts. Um, Take responsibility for your accuracy. We talked a little bit about that. So anyway, there's, I think it's, it's worth a read if you're interested. Um, 
Well, thank you. Thank you, Travis, very much for your time today. And this is a, obviously a hot topic and something that we are talking about a lot these days with fake news and, and, our, and what we see as maybe a barrage on the First Amendment and the need to keep a fair and uh, open dialogue and, and an avenue for it. And certainly the newspaper provides that for us. One of the benefits to coming to City Club is that, you know, we could give you a lot of things, but we want to give you something you can use every day. So thank you very much for being here. We appreciate you. Can we give him a round of applause? Thank you. You've been listening to the City Club of Idaho Falls. All City Club programs have been archived to listen to at any time at ifcityclub.com archives. The next City Club of Idaho Falls event will take place Thursday, February 21st, and features the Honorable Jim Jones, former Chief Justice of the Idaho Supreme Court and Idaho Attorney General. He is the 2019 recipient of the John D. Hansen Civility Award. RSVP by noon on Monday, February 18th at ifcityclub.com. That forum takes place at the ISU Idaho Falls University Place Benyon Student Union in the Multipurpose Room. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Blackfoot. Stay with us for Matt's Movie Tracks, coming up next. Hi, I'm Jackie Bergen, Academic Advisor for the Pre-Health Professions at Idaho State University. We're proud to be Idaho's designated Health Professions University. Healthcare providers of the future are learning alongside experienced professionals with the innovative, hands-on education tools they need to prepare them for their chosen field. Our student success is evident in looking at their promising percentages from the 2017-2018 school year, when over 65% of ISU students who applied for medical school were accepted, many with multiple offers. This compares to just 38% for all of Idaho and 41% nationwide. Idaho State, your hometown university. KISU is proud to co-sponsor Constitutional Conversations with Dr. David Gray Adler and the Alturas Institute, held Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. through the month of January. This Wednesday, January 30th, come join us for the presentation titled The Future of American Democracy, Confronting Challenges, Fixing Flaws. That's Wednesday, January 30th in Idaho Falls at 7 p.m. at the Benyon Building at University Place. More information at alturasinstitute.com.